Today I would like you to do some work with your imagination to conjure up the atmosphere of the first season, first and second seasons of the Ballet Russe in Paris. And it's quite difficult to do that because uh, the ballet being a very ephemeral genre, uh, it's not preserved in exactly the same form, so we can't see exactly the same thing that the Parisians saw in 1909 and 1910. So we'll try to put it all, piece it all together from uh, pictures, from memoirs, uh, from some of reconstructed choreographies, which will not never be quite the same as it was at the time. But so we'll have to reconstruct it in our minds. Starting with this wonderful uh, print by Leon Baxt, which I think gives you a sense of what we're going to talk about today. The draw of the exotic, the draw of the oriental, this twisted body, the amazing colors. But we'll start with the, with the question, why ballet? Yeah, because if, if you were to my lecture last time, you probably remember that I left Diaghilev at the moment of his great operatic success in Paris, which was the production of Boris Godunov by Mussorgsky, with the great bass Fyodor Shalyapin uh, in the main role. So why suddenly ballet? We know that Diaghilev wasn't actually that interested in ballet himself. And he actually wanted to bring four operas in the next season. Many people try to claim uh, that they were the ones who persuaded Diaghilev to do that. Yeah, so there are different versions of events. But basically, there was uh, this great asset in Russia, the Imperial Ballet, in St. Petersburg. And at that point, the ballet was changing. It was reforming. It was becoming more exciting. Uh, it had stars like Anna Pavlova, uh, whom you know as Pavlova, yeah, and <laughs> you know her as a dessert, <laughs> but actually her name was Pavlova. Uh, so uh, as you can see, she was in her late 20s by that stage, so she was already a great star. And the very, very young and new star, Václav Nijinsky, uh, who started dancing when he was 17 in, in St. Petersburg. And uh, he was one of these very first male dancers who suddenly became stars, because before that, it was, uh, emphasis was always on the female star, on the prima ballerina. And probably the most important uh, of them all, of the, those assets of the imperial theatres, was Mikhail Fokin, or Michel Fokin, yeah, in, in the Paris pronunciation, uh, who was the choreographer. He was also a dancer with the ballerius himself, but it's about his role as a choreographer that we're going to talk now. So what did he do? Yeah, so he already staged some ballets at the uh, Mariinsky Theatre. And the novelties that he introduced were extremely important. So he was trying to take the ballerinas out, the ballerinas out of her, their point shoes, yeah, their point shoes, take them off the point. Uh, and it was quite difficult to do because uh, they were not allowed to use to barefoot dancing, which was becoming the fashion. So very famously, in one of the first ballets that he staged, he painted their feet <laughs> on the shoes. <laughs> uh, so he relaxed the technique. You probably know that the classical ballet posture is very rigid. Yeah, you have turn out feet, turned out feet, and uh, only a few positions for the arms. The arms not doing very much. Yeah. So he introduced a range of less stylized movements. Yeah, borrowing from various uh, folk dances, also from Greek and Egyptian art, from wrestling, from everything. You have to remember that these people were incredibly well-educated and very curious. So they would go to museums, they would look at art, they would look at various objects, they would look at various um, historically appropriate types of gesture and introduce them into dance. He was influenced by Sadora Duncan, yeah, who had toured Russia in 1905, and she, of course, danced 
bare, with bare feet and in this flowing dress, very simple tunic. And she also introduced this fashion of dancing to already existing classical hits, which he is also going to support. He puts emphasis on the upper body. Yeah, the arms start moving and expressing uh, feelings, emotions, and also um, sort of national, um, uh, various national gestures yeah, that you can associate with the East, for example, or with Spain, or with Hungary, or something like that. And what he was also very good of was choreographing these mass dances. Yeah, so he got rid of the static corps de ballet when they were all doing the same things and got them to move in what seemed almost haphazard manner, but it was all polyphonically choreographed. Yeah, there were groups of people doing different things, which was absolutely overwhelming to start with yeah, when you see it the first time. And the main thing that for the every new ballet, he would devise a new choreographic idiom. Yeah? So it would not be like the previous one. And even for different characters, they will be dancing uh, in a different style, which was a completely new thing. Now, uh, Diaghilev did not allow to film the productions, although you can imagine that the technology was already there to make the films, but he thought it didn't actually reflect what was happening on stage. It was a very poor reflection. So we don't have, uh, ha have hardly anything uh, on film. But I wanted to show you just little things, again, to fire up your imagination. So um, um, this is one of the ballerinas, Tamara Karsavina, uh, who became one of the stars. And you will see her in the Fokin uh, choreographed dance, uh, which is called Dance with the Torch. So the first thing that you notice, yeah, that she is not as underfed, yeah, as <laughs> as contemporary ballerinas, and that was indeed, you know, uh, the, the style at the time. Uh, and the second thing that you notice that although she uses point, yeah, at various points, it doesn't look like a classical piece anymore. Yeah, her hands are much freer, her arms are much freer, and she's doing something. Uh, she's becoming the torch itself, herself, yes? Yeah? So, uh, another one, uh, well, a, a tiny bit of Nijinsky. You can't actually see anything. It's just <laughs> a glimpse. Um. Just some shiny clothes, nothing else. Tiny, tiny clip, just uh, you know, a fantasy. Uh, and another one is uh, Anna Pavlova in, um, in a piece which is called Californian Poppy. So she's dancing as a poppy, as a flower. So she was uh, a new type of ballerina, this very fragile body. Everyone was commenting on that. Yeah? And you can see, again, there are elements of classical movement still present, but she is much more expressive than that. So uh, these were all the things that were already existent in Russia. Uh, and uh, this is why it was possible to bring them to Paris. But what happened uh, with this first ballet season? As I said, originally Diaghilev wanted to bring four operas. Yeah, so he wanted to capitalize on the success of Boris Godunov. He wanted to bring uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's The Maid of Pskov, which was remained Ivan the Terrible. You can see what he's doing. Yeah? You had Boris Godunov, now you have uh, Ivan the Terrible. Shalapin, again, is in the main role, yeah, so, uh, uh, capitalizing on his success. Glinka's Ruslan and Ludmila, which was un one of his favorite operas, and he'd already done Act One. Um, he wanted to do, do it again. 
Borden's Prince Eger, uh, and Sirov's Judith, which is less known, but he also had Chalapan there, so he was uh, pretty confident of, of its success. And only one evening of ballet, yeah, that was the original plan, and uh, it, it had three uh, one-actors in it. Yeah, so Le Pavillon d'Armite, uh, which was a ballet based on Versailles, we might talk about it in one of the other lectures, Les Sylphides, which was based on Chopin's music and didn't have any plot, and Cleopatra, which was the oriental ballet. Uh, so that was the original plan. What happened in the end, uh, it, was all, it had to be all completely different because uh, the main funder of the season, the Russian Grand Duke Vladimir, died. And nobody else from the Russian court was prepared to fund this enterprise because everyone hated Diaghilev already by that stage. Yeah, so, and suddenly, yeah, he had to rethink the whole thing. Uh, he only left one single act, so two acts from Judith, yeah, to cut down on the opera. And they had to make up the rest with, with another evening of ballet. So this is how ballet gets in, almost by accident, almost as a result of a misfortune. Um, and this is what you have, yeah, so in one evening you have Le Pavillon d'Armide, then one act of Prince Sigur, which is actually the Palovtsian dances. So it's opera, which is actually ballet. Yeah? And you have this thing, Le Festin, which is, uh, he used it many times, this title, for various things. It's basically a divertissement of uh, different pieces, yeah, just sing single numbers stuck together. Uh, he still went on with uh, Ivan the Terrible, uh, and strangely, it didn't have quite the same effect as Boris Godunov. Yeah, they didn't find the music was quite so exciting. It was Rimsky-Korsakov's opera, uh, and Rimsky-Korsakov wasn't there because he, he died the previous year. So, um, and then, uh, yeah, as you can see, they, they put together in the same way uh, things that were already there, rearranged them, yeah, opera together with the ballet. It all happened in uh, Théâtre de Châtelet, uh, which was uh, uh, quite big, it was sitting more than uh, 2,000 people, but it was quite shabby, yeah, not particularly prestigious, which tells you that it wasn't top dog yet, yeah? So what did he do? This is amazing. Um, I told you last time that he liked to uh, get interfered with every single detail, yeah, it really, sort of manage every single detail. So he decided to refurbish the theatre. <laughs> yeah, so uh, remove nine rows to put the bigger orchestra in and to create more space, uh, to put some more velvet, you know, uh, new velvet, uh, something fresher in the auditorium. Amazingly, designed the seating plan, which would be aesthetically pleasing. Actually, at the first row of the dress circle, he in invited actresses and ballerinas who were incredibly pretty and just removed the men altogether. They were just sitting there. <laughs> Blonde brunette, blonde brunette, blonde brunette. I mean, who would think of that? Yeah, that reminds you that in those days you didn't just look on the stage, yeah? The theater was also looking at the audience. So, uh, so they were called the basket of flowers. Everyone was commenting on this. Uh, so, colorful souvenir program books were designed, which people could take away. You can still buy them sometimes on eBay, yeah, so they still have their value. And of course, for every one of these Mariinsky ballets that he or were already there, existing ones, he actually refurbished them as well. For example, with Cleopatra, he decided that the music of Mariinsky was no good not bright enough, not interesting enough. So uh, he scrapped the music <laughs> and um, used the same choreography for different pieces, for pieces that were more familiar, by music by Glinka, by Mussorgsky, uh, better music. Yeah, it's a little bit like a film director who would just choose to use uh, already existing hits rather than hiring a new composer. Yeah, so he did the same thing. And the new sets had to be painted because actually the Mariinsky would not uh, 
uh, release the sets. There was, so, as I said, you know, so much against this whole enterprise that they would not give them for free. Now, all of that had to happen with the help of the French side, and I have to mention, to be fair, uh, this person, Gabriel Astruc, who was um, a, a theater manager and a critic and an empresario, and who basically ended up uh, financing, finding funders on the French side for Diaghilev, and ended up in debt yeah, as a result of this season, but also yeah, became famous. And he, he was very important in bringing um, other people to Paris, such as Toscanini, for example, and Puccini, the Italian season. So he was um, a very brave man who had to, to weather quite a lot of uh, difficulties in that season. So uh, the result was astonishing, though, um, and you know, here is just one of these uh, ecstatic uh, appraisals of ballet. And this is in the city where people actually wondered whether would anybody, anybody would actually attend a whole evening of ballet. It wasn't fashionable at that point at all. And yet, this is what you have. This is Count Harry Kessler, who was a German diplomat. I could never have dreamt of a mimetic art that was so beautiful, so refined, so far beyond any theatrics. Strange but true, since seeing Tristan, yeah, Tristan and Isolde Wagner's opera, for the first time, I don't think I've ever been so deeply impressed by a theatrical production. These women, Pavlova, Karsavina, Rubinstein, and these men, or rather boys, Nizhinsky and a few hours, seem to have descended from another higher, more beautiful world, just like living gods and goddesses. We are truly witnessing the birth of a new art. To achieve such effects is a measure of our modern refinement. It testifies to an aesthetic appreciation that verges on the perverse. Yeah, so this, uh, this is a, um, a statement that comes from the age where decadence was a positive thing. Yeah, decadence, excess. Uh, this uh, incredible stimulation of all the senses at once was how people imagined the luxury uh, living. And uh, this is what Ballerius offered them. But not everyone was uh, so enchanted, and you have this uh, <laughs> rather uh, sarcastic phrase from Claude Debussy. As to the ballet, it's probably that I have completely forgotten the meaning of this sort of spectacle since I was bored by it. All the same, what a peculiar way to dress people. It seems to me that we have better than that at the Folie Berger, uh, which is the cabaret, yeah, music hall in Paris. So, and you would think, oh, you know, he doesn't understand ballet, he doesn't like ballet, he doesn't know ballet. What is he doing? The next day, Dagalif approaches him to write a ballet. <laughs> and he says, yes, I'll think about it. So he starts uh, actually working on one of the projects. Yeah, so even people who were not quite convinced could not resist the lure of this, this spectacle. And the lure of the Orient, which is our next chapter. Now, uh, if we look at what was performed, yeah, so the one in color, uh, the, the oriental ones, or the exotic ones. Not all of them were quite about the East, but uh, you can see that's sort of roughly, roughly half and half. Uh, so why is it that the oriental theme became so popular? And of course, France and Russia were both colonies, yeah, with these outlying regions. So there was always an interest in this difference of the, these lands could bring to, to the metropolis. So uh, you probably remember that Paris has all these Egyptian obelisks yeah, connected to Na Napoleon's campaigns. Uh, the painter Delacroix visited North Africa and Morocco. Um, there were, uh, I should probably, first of all, show you this. Yeah, so, um, and you would think, you know, what would they, uh, why would they, were they so enchanted and shocked by all these costumes if they had already art like this, yeah, in the um, middle of the 19th century. Uh, so, 
France was interested in the Orient and has its own tradition. There were composers such as Félicien David who wrote a piece about Arabia in 1842 or Saint-Saëns who was interested in North African music. And of course in Russia, Oriental fashions followed the order of imperial con conquests. Yeah? So when they were conquering the Caucasus, you had music taking uh, motifs from there, then they shifted to Central Asia, and you have Borodin writing music based on Central Asian motifs and so on. So you're kind of progressing uh, as the empire is extending to the east. And of course in uh, Paris, uh, there were also Paris expositions which uh, yeah, regularly brought uh, the taste of the east to the public and you can see this is this Sudanese house, and uh, musical uh, influences as well. Very famously in 1889, there was a Javanese gamelan, yeah, which is an orchestra of these very uh, amazingly sounding bells and, and other instruments, um, which Debussy heard, yeah, and which uh, also influenced his music. So, uh, this is uh, what you have uh, in terms of musical orientalism. In Russia, one of the, the heights of it was Borodin's opera Prince Igor, uh, which uh, portrayed, pitted against each other the Russians and the Orientals, which were called Polovtsi, Polovtsians. Yeah, nobody knew by that stage, by the 19th century, who the Polovtsians actually were supposed to be. But so there were these kind of stereotyped Orientals. So, Basically, with the Orient, as you probably know, geographical precision is not important. Yeah? So uh, it doesn't matter whether it's Far East, Middle East, it's all, it all becomes a bit blurred in the imagination. Uh, and there are very colorful stereotypes uh, uh, ar arising from all that mixture. One is of that wild masculinity yeah? and uh, all these warriors. Um, uh, barbaric force of those warriors, and another one is, is feminine sensuality and eroticism and the taste of the harem, yeah, and the forbidden. Uh, so uh, the masculinity, one of these um, wonderful moments we can see in the Polovtsin dances, and this is for King's choreography, but used in a film. can see yeah, the movement of masses, that's just what I described, yeah, about for Kim. I'll go back a little bit because I missed out something about uh, Le Festin, yeah, just to show you that this Le Festin feast yeah, was also uh, a collection of numbers mostly based on Oriental uh, nations. For example, the Lizginka from Glinka's Ruslan and Lyudmila, which is based on Georgians, yeah, so the, the Caucasus, which I mentioned. Um, and you can see the colorful costumes from the, the pictures of the time. And, but some of them weren't quite oriental, but also were exotic. And this, for example, there were the Hungarians at the very end of that evening, uh, which apparently had a great effect as well. <laughs> That's Glazunov's music from Raimonda, yeah, which... Uh, um, and uh, finally Cleopatra, which proved to be the greatest hit of all. Yeah, so as I said, music of Oransky, he replaced by other kind of music. And uh, he got Leon Bakst to design this amazing set, which was, uh, had this incredible 
uh, inside of the, an Egyptian temple, as you can see, in very unusual colors, which was very impressive. And the Cleopatra herself was Ida Rubinstein, who was a, um, a different kind of dancer. She was not as well-trained as those people from the Mariinsky, but she had this amazing um, physique and sort of oriental features, as she would describe, she was Jewish. And she also, uh, she could strip quite well. You know, she was already stripped in, uh, at Salome uh, the previous year. Yeah, uh, actually stripped off completely you know, in Russia. Uh, so they did something a little bit like that in Paris, not quite completely. She was left in, in something very transparent. But there was this idea of taking the veils off. Yeah, so it was this kind of glorified striptease uh, presented with Orientalist music. Uh, I can show you a little bit of how this all worked together. Only again, you have to disregard the music because this is a version with Arensky music. Yeah, so we couldn't quite have everything. But you can sort of, this is the Baxt uh, design and Fokin's choreography. <laughs> Typical music as well, uh, even though if they replaced it with something similar. Yeah, but you will usually have a, an oboe. Uh, an oboe is a very oriental instrument because it has this double reed, yeah, which reminds people of zerna or the zerna, yeah, that, uh, the oriental reed instrument. So uh, you would usually have something like that and a little bit of percussion, yeah, a little bit of dance feel to it. Mm, and it would all be, the, the lines, the melodic lines would be all snaking, sinuous, yeah, chromatic. So as if the music already suggests the movement, yeah, of the arms and so on. So uh, Cleopatra was a great success and uh, of course Diaghilev wanted to capitalize on it uh, in the next season. So what happens in the next season? They move to the Grand Opera House. Yeah, so that's definitely going to going, getting, moving up in the world. And yet, ironically, no more operas. Yeah, this is <laughs> the moment when Degelev Company becomes the ballet company exclusively, almost exclusively. And that was again the financial reasons, yeah, because it was much cheaper to present the ballet, and uh, after a while, Diaghilev stopped bringing the orchestra in. Yeah, you could sacrifice the orchestra. With opera, it wasn't possible, because they would need to rehearse together. Yeah, with the ballet, you didn't necessarily have to bring the Russian orchestra. You could use French musicians. That cut a lot of expense. But he also makes these new uh, steps. Yeah, so he now commissions new works. He doesn't recycle the works from the Mariinsky, but uh, he commissions new works. And he has three oriental ballets versus two non-oriental. So you can see which way we're going. So Scheherazade, Les Orientales, which is another divergement, and the Firebird. Uh, just to, uh, you know, showing you a little bit from Lazare and Tyler from which we, about which we don't know very much. Uh, this is Nijinsky yeah, in one of his uh, stylized oriental poses. But one of the main winning pieces was Scheherazade, uh, and we're going to talk about it at length. Uh, again, this was the same idea. So the kind of re recycling the idea of Cleopatra, but now uh, with better music. And the music that Diaghilev chose was an existing symphonic suite by Rimsky-Korsakov, which had its own program that did not have an orgy and a massacre at the end. 
So he thought he would add that. Yeah? So he completely created this uh, incredible spectacle, uh, completely disregarding what Rimsky-Korsakov wanted. And thankfully, Rimsky-Korsakov wasn't there to see it, but his widow was very upset about it. And uh, complained that was, uh, of course, in, you know, when this all reached Russia, the news of that blasphemy, yeah, uh, again, Diaghilev's reputation fell even lower. Yeah, what are you doing there in Paris? How are you representing our greatest composer? Uh, so, uh, the artist Valentin Serov uh, wrote a letter uh, for the press in, defen in defense of Diaghilev. And this is what he said. It was, of course, a blasphemy to produce Scheherazade against the grain of the program that Rimsky-Korsakov provided for his symphonic suite. But once this blasphemy has uh, actually been seen on the stage, the crime is mitigated. There is so much true beauty in these dances, in the clothes, in the background, and in the beings who move to Rimsky-Korsakov's captivating music, so that we forget how different it all is from Rimsky-Korsakov's program, while we still recognize that same Orient and accept it as another fairy tale from A Thousand and One Nights. Yeah, so, yes, it is blasphemy, but you had to have seen it. It was, it was amazing. So Rimsky-Korsakov, uh, choreography by Fokin, and the design again by Baxt. Well, this is a reconstruction, uh, and so I wanted to show you both this um, very sensuous uh, pas de deux. Uh, what happens there is yeah, that uh, the favorite slave, Zobeid, is, is left alone by Shahriyar, her husband, and while he is away, she falls for the golden slave, and they dance this erotic dance. And another bit that I want to show you is the orgy. Yeah, you had to have an orgy. <laughs> um, and Fokin was extremely good at, at choreographing them. Yeah, so this is... And then the husband comes back. Again, in Rimsky-Korsakov's music, it's just a storm on the sea, yeah, and the ship goes down uh, during the storm. But here, you can see, it's much more exciting than that. Um, I think one of the main heroes of Scheherazade was Baxt and his design. This is one of the versions of this which he had himself done, and it's all in green. But I think the, what they actually saw was this one, yeah, which is a combination of indigo and emerald green. And everyone writes about this. This was something that absolutely astonished them. Uh, and I, I've chosen this 
quote from a Vogue writer in 1915 who actually puts Baxt at the center of this whole experience. Yeah? A visual artist becomes the center of a ballet spectacle. Isn't that interesting? Like an exuberant barbarian, Baxt wanted this, his pigments to live with the music and the dancers, to sing and shout and dance with joyous abandon. Emerald, indigo and geranium, the leopard spots and the scales of the serpent, black, rose, vermilion and triumphant orange were all shrieking to be heard and shrieking in strange harmony. The colors were shrieking, yeah? It's a kind of synesthesia. Uh, and of all, of course, to this color was added music, added music, the flying colors of the dancers, that's all secondary, um, and the art of Nijinsky and of Tamar Karsavina. The effect of Bach's scenery was halted by the voluptuous movement of the dancers and the astonishing music um, uh, of Rimsky-Korsakov. The result was a bacchanal more splendid than Rubens ever dreamed of, an orgy of sound, color, and movement. So look at this again. There were various interesting uh, influences that this particular curtain, the green curtain with the blue in it, had. Uh, if you look at Matisse, who was there uh, uh, together with Proust, together with lots of other artists and writers, um, he got particularly hooked on that combination of blue and green. Uh, and you can see it in his own Moroccan paintings of a few years later. Yeah, so he, he goes to the actual Orient <laughs> and sees it in the colors of Baxt. Uh, and pr pr here in particular, yeah, his very famous piece from, which comes from 1910, yeah, so exactly from the right year. And actually ba Baxt was so fashionable at that point and everyone wanted him uh, that he actually was able to move in, uh, share studio with Matisse. Yeah, so it's not a, a, a complete coincidence. But also this uh, brooch uh, by Cartier, yeah, uh, where, which puts um, in a, this very iconic Art Deco way sapphires with emeralds. Apparently, sapphires and emeralds were put together also under the influence of Bach's green and blue. <laughs> it's wonderful. So, uh, and the fashion was influenced by the Russians as well. Uh, so there was this fashion designer, Paul Poiré, and he basically just uh, produced uh, harem pants and turbans for the seasons of 1911, 1912. Uh, there was a very special party, uh, which was called the Thousand, the Second Night. <laughs> and this, uh, you can see his wife, Madame Poiret, uh, uh, dressed in this uh, very balletic costume, the so-called lampshade tunic that they all wore in Scheherazade, and harem pants and a turban. Yeah, so uh, I just love the idea that Russians could influence Paris fashions. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, and Baxt became so much part of the po popular culture, I wanted to give you this little snatch of a Cole Porter song uh, from 1919, yeah, which, uh, which is about uh, the, the singers, the protagonist's mother, who is very progressive and incredibly wants, wants to have everything in the last fashion. Um. To show to our limits, our nerves have been taxed. Why she just at the bathroom, done over by Baxt, and for instance... <laughs> yeah, so Baxt becomes a rhyme to taxed. Our nerves have been taxed. Yeah, so you can see he becomes sort of a hero of popular culture. And that's all uh, starts with, with Scheherazade. Uh, I wanted to show you another uh, instance of influence of Scheherazade. And uh, this is the influence on Maurice Ravel. You know, Diaghilev was thinking ahead. He didn't want just to think of this as a particularly Russian enterprise. One of the first things that he did, he commissioned Maurice Ravel a ballet. But Ravel took his time. And uh, so it, it wouldn't be until 1912 that that was produced, and that would be a Greek ballet, Daphne et Chloe. Now, also designed by Baxt. And you can see from this design that it's, it's not supposed to be an oriental ballet. 
Yeah, Greek is not Oriental. Greek, ancient Greek is something that is, uh, yeah, the, the root of Western civilization. So it's not the exotic other, it's us. Yeah, and there's uh, very different associations, uh, especially in France, uh, with classical Greece, which uh, have to do with a lot with purity and in innocence, you know, when they were all imagining still that the statues were white. Yeah, and not painted, and and this it, it's a completely different idea. There there was nothing like this, uh, you know, barbarian uh, sensuousness and and eroticism and, and anything like that. And you can see that yeah, in, encapsulated in the contrast of these two bodies. So Ravel is writing a Greek ballet, but he cannot get away from the lure of the Oriental. Yeah, and bit by bit, various bits of the Oriental start getting into the ballet. He's particularly uh, worried about the ending. Actually, the, the whole thing was delayed by a year because he couldn't write the final dance. He didn't know what to do. And uh, eventually, um, he said, I just put Scheherazade on my, <laughs> on my music stand and sort of lived through it. <laughs> and that helped him to write uh, the finale. So um, if you remember Palotzin dances, I'll play it again. They have uh, this, this uh, raucous uh, choir. Yeah, so uh, I want to show you uh, the ending of Ravel's Daphne et Chloe, where he basically produced an orgiastic dance that has never been heard or seen before. Yeah? In, in the wrong ballet, so to speak, yeah? because it's a Greek ballet, although it is about love, but the, the style of it is oriental, and this is completely uh, in the style of Cleopatra and in the style of Scheherazade. You will hear in it both this choir uh, suddenly yeah, joining the orchestra, and you also hear the actual tunes from Scheherazade, which Ravel just stole. He couldn't resist it. Yeah, if you remember in Scheherazade, yeah, that's kind of melody. You will hear it in Ravel. Mm, and this uh, is not Fakin um, choreography, but I think it's very, very good and certainly influenced by the same principles. Very similar to you and that. I think, really, although this is not yeah, exactly authentic, what I'm showing to you, but it, it encapsulates very much the excitement of what happened at the time. I, I just love this clip. Also, because I think it, it is based on Fokin's idea of visualizing the sound in music. And you could hear that there, there were, when they were whirling around, 
Yeah, there was whirling music in the score. And that was Ravel writing music specifically for the ballet. This is what so excited the audiences, that everything seemed to be going together. Yeah, the colors were shouting and screaming. Yeah, the music was dancing. And everything, you know, suddenly was this great uh, harmony of all the arts, yeah, pooling together. So, the final ballet that we're going to talk about is, uh, goes even further, in a sense, because it now has a new score composed for it. Yeah, and Scheherazade, you had a completely new ballet, but the score was already in existence. So this, Diaghilev was making the next step. He actually commissions a new score. And uh, Stravinsky became the composer, uh, you can see him looking rather glum. Uh, <laughs> but that was kind of his fashionable face at the time. You can see Fokin in the middle, and this is Baxt, who is, uh, as you can see, but tw 20 years older by that stage. Uh, so, um, and they're, they're producing this, this thing together uh, out of nothing, out of many sources. Uh, the plot of the Firebird is not based on any particular Russian fairy tale. It's a concoction of about you know ten different sources, and everyone had a go uh, at uh, putting this plot together, so that it was very difficult even to decide who should hold the co uh, copyright to this scenario. So Benoit, uh, you know, was part of it, and Fokin actually was one of the main driving forces there, and of course Diaghilev himself also. Um, so what Diaghilev wanted, he wanted a Russian ballet, Russian nationalist ballet, in the same way that you already had the Russian nationalist opera, about maybe 25 of them already, yeah? There was no Russian national ballet, uh, or what there was wasn't good enough. Uh, so uh, Stravinsky wasn't his first choice. Stravinsky was still very young and completely unknown. He was a student of Rimsky-Korsakov. Rimsky-Korsakov had just died. He also had a, another connection to the opera and the Mariinsky world. He was the son of Fyodor Stravinsky, who was a very important bass singer. So Diaghilev would have known of him. And uh, in one of the evenings of contemporary music a few years pre previous, he actually heard his music. But Stravinsky wasn't his first choice. He commissioned it first to Anatoly Ladov, uh, who was a master of fairy tale music, but a very slow worker. Yeah, so he didn't produce anything. Um, then apparently he uh, commissioned it to Cherepnin. For some reason, that didn't work either. And uh, Stravinsky was entrusted with the creation of this score. And basically, I think his brief was just do the same as Rimsky-Korsakov did, only for ballet. Yeah, so you have this thing that you have uh, the real and the supernatural, you have the Russian and the Oriental all blended together in these different styles and all ends with this glorification uh, of the Russian element. Uh, various elements of the plot uh, were paraphrasing already familiar Russian operas. Um, I've got them uh, written down somewhere. For example, uh, for example, there is a need to defend an enemy, yeah, who is Koshei the immortal. Uh, Koshei or Kashei uh, comes from the word Kost, which is bone. He is basically a skeleton, an evil wizard. But he also happens to be an oriental enemy yeah, in this context. So you have to, to defeat the enemy to rescue the bride, which comes from Ruslan and Ludmila. Uh, you have to procure help from a seductive supernatural being, which is the same as in Sadko, and that being is the firebird. You have to cast a spell to make the enemy dance until he drops, yeah, which again happens in Sadko. And, uh, closing with this hymn of glorification, like many Russian operas close. So, a very interesting uh, account of Michel Fokin of how they were working on this ballet, and it seems like they really were working together. So Stravinsky played on the piano, and I interpreted the role of the Tsarevich, yeah, so the main protagonist, the Russian uh, 
prints, the piano substituting for the wall. Uh, what he means is he has to climb over the wall <laughs> uh, to be on stage. Yeah, so he must have been climbing over the piano. Stravinsky watching, accompanying me. Yeah, so he improvised the music with patches of the Tsarevich melodies, playing mysterious tremolos as background to depict the garden of the sinister immortal Kashche. Later on, I played the role of the Tsarina. Yeah, so a female role as well, and hesitantly took the golden apple. Uh, then I became Caché, uh, his evil entourage, and so on. Yeah, so Fokin was basically playing all the roles, and Stravinsky was improvising the music. All this found most colorful interpretation in the sounds that came from the piano flowing freely from the fingers of Stravinsky. Uh, and I will show you how the music works. Yeah, the music really works with the dance. It looks like it was created for that particular situation. You really don't appreciate it when you just hear a suite from the Firebird yeah, performed in concert. It's just beautiful music. But it was written in particular for that, for those scenes of interactions between characters. Like this, this is another sketch by Baxt, yeah? that's the moment of uh, Ivan Tsarevich capturing the firebird. Yeah? So the firebird is, uh, is this being who, is, um, who can help him to marry the woman that he fell in love with, the princess who he needs to rescue first. Yeah, so, and his magic, this magic feather he can procure from the firebird, but first he needs to catch her. So what you will see, yeah, is this moment of how he catches her, and you can hear that she's a bird in the music, the fluttering of the wings, you can see the fluttering of the wings, because this is what she's doing with her arms, and then the kind of terrible moment, the horns play this, chord, you know, when she's captured. Yeah. She's captured, she tries to free herself, and then submits to him, and they dance a pas de deux. Yeah, with this very oriental music, again oriental music that you will recognize now, again with the same oboe, uh, very seductive melody. So you recognize this yeah, very seductive music that sort of just draws you in, yeah, and you forget about time. And, you know, so, so she is um, uh, an interesting character because that's the one who he dances the pas de deux with, yeah, not with his bride. <laughs> so obviously a girl who is good enough to, uh, you know, to use <laughs> and um, dance the pas de deux with, but not to marry. Um, but, you know, so uh, the, the various interpretations of this uh, interesting conundrum. Um, 
Then I wanted to show you Emma, the moment where you have this orgiastic dance. Now this is the dance that can't stop, uh, but it's a real evil choreography. It has to be ugly. This is another thing that Fokin discovered, you know, that ballet didn't have to be beautiful and graceful all the time. It had to be expressive. <laughs> Another thing that uh, Fokin actually didn't want to do, he of course wanted to f end the ballet as usual with his mass dance, yeah, which would be again very exciting as he had in Cleopatra and Scheherazade. And Stravinsky suggested ending it rather like an opera would end with this almost choral-like uh, glorification. Yeah? Um, which you will recognize, it's very familiar music, it's become very popular now, uh, but uh, there is nothing for the dancers to do. Yeah, because these are now Russians that have triumphed, and the Russian body is very different from the Oriental body, and they can't do the orgy because they're not supposed to. Yeah, so um, they do something very, uh, the opposite almost, yeah? So incredibly decent. couldn't cut it off, yeah, so the great hymnic celebration, but nothing is happening in terms of ballet, yeah, so I find that, that very interesting. Uh, so, yeah, what I told you, yeah, the oriental body is not the Russian body. Again, you can tell this from Bach's design, yeah, it's a very different pose. So, in fact, in, fire, in the Firebird, we have two types of exoticism. Yeah, for Parisians. For Parisians, the Russian exoticism was also exoticism. And there is an Oriental exoticism, which is exotic to the Russians and to the French. Yeah? So a kind of du dual exoticism. Did, did the French, could they distinguish one from another? I don't think so. I don't think it mattered to them. But for the Russians, it is also important that the Orientalism and the Oriental style became part of defining the self. It was a very important thing for them to develop this colorful style in opposition to Western Europe. 
And there was even a narrative to go with it, that Russia was this young culture which was going to destroy uh, the old Europe. We don't need your civilization, we were going to wipe it all off. Yeah? Uh, and uh, the, the very nice poetic line comes to mind from Alexander Bloch. Yes, we are Scythians. Yeah, Scythians is, uh, was standing for that barbaric nation. Um, yes, we are Scythians. Yes, Asians we are with squint and lusty eyes. <laughs> so, um, so the Oriental becomes part of the Russian self-definition, not just the exotic other. But, you know, Diaghilev used both to produce something that was Russia for export. And this is a quote from Stravinsky that I wanted to end with, uh, because when he arrived in Paris, he was slightly taken aback by the fact that the words for Russian exports seem to have been stamped everywhere, both on the stage and on the music. Yeah, so what has been produced was kind of commercial product, uh, extremely popular, uh, almost uh, something that you can sell in a, in a department store. Um, and yet at the same time, this was a perfect artistic collaboration which rejuvenated ballet as a genre and prompted other leading artists of the time to involve themselves in Diaghilev's projects, resulting in these productions that combined cutting-edge artistry with popular success. That was an amazing thing, this combination. There was no financial success, though. Yeah, they ended up in debt. Even after the second season, Diaghilev was owing something like half a million dollars in, in today's money. And nevertheless, the demand for the ballet dancers, the, the demand for this product was so great that from 1911, he, made, uh, he founded his own ballet company, which was now completely severed from the Russian imperial theaters. And that was the result of what happened during these two years. Thank you very much.